Welcome to the Office 365 Developer Show. I'm your host, Jeremy Thake. The only show focused on Office 365 development, where I talk to the experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 platform. For more information on Office 365 development, please visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. Welcome to episode 31, where I'll be talking to Vesa Yuvenen on the application lifecycle management. And we recorded this show on January the 27th, 2015, uh, when we were at the Tech Ready event here in Seattle. Um, before we jump into the show, as usual, just wanted to do some weekly updates. If you have not been living under a rock, you may have heard of something called Microsoft HoloLens, which we announced at the um, Windows 10 event that we did on the 21st last week. Um, very exciting to see some innovation out of our hardware division. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, there's a link in the show notes to go and check out the video which explains and demonstrates what the HoloLens technology will do. Totally intrigued on the SDK and being able to do some visualizations with Office 365 around kind of, you know, like reading mail in HoloLens and um, viewing documents in HoloLens using our APIs. So totally stoked to um, have some play with this stuff as soon as it's available to to us internally and, and to you guys maybe in a preview, but they haven't really announced too much around that just yet. The second link, uh, Steve Curran, who's a regular appearance in these weekly notes has written an article around SharePoint REST APIs around batch support that we announced and um, he's made some suggestions around some of the transactional areas of SharePoint REST as well which um, we've already fed back to engineering so I appreciate him documenting that stuff and sharing that with everybody. Another one by Heather Solomon who um, has been inside the SharePoint community for a long long time especially around the browning area and um, has done a lot of work there and she's made a a, a great set of uh, points here and she's been talking about when you should and shouldn't should and shouldn't brand SharePoint online and some of the approaches of doing that so it's a great write-up based on discussions she's having with her customers and obviously ties into a lot of the messaging we have around that as well. The fourth link there by Tobias Zimmergren, he's um, a very active guy here as well and um, he's been writing up some stuff around um, getting started with Azure Web Jobs or how we used to know timer jobs in SharePoint and what's really cool is now we've moved it to the markdown files within the Office 365 Patterns and Practices group site in GitHub which means that once the MSDN team review that, that it will actually be published within MSDN too as long as um, they're happy with the, the state of the content. So a big thank you to BS for jumping on board the guidance um, stuff that we're doing. Um, so please go and check that out. And then lastly, um, Dave Warner um, was here for an event that Vesa actually run with myself and Steve Walker and a bunch of other guys from Corp for the F Full Trust Code FTC um, transformation to the app model. Um, we've had Vesa on the show a few times around FTC. We did a three-day event with partners where we walked through all of that code and um, he's written up a really nice blog post around um, the SharePoint app model and more specifically like kind of where it's going and the transformation and the benefits and stuff. So please go and check out that post by Dave. And so without further ado, we'll jump straight into the show. Um, this one is a great one. It was by request from the Yammer group. So please keep your feedback coming on the shows. And um, one little f- thing, if you see me in an event, please come and say hello and let me know you listen to the show. Um, I may have some nice little gifts for you. Um, so, you know, if you see me at a build next night, definitely come and grab me and we'll um, give you some swag as we call it in the marketing side of the house. So enjoy the show and see you next week. 
Okay, so I'm here with uh, Vesa Evenham from the CAT team, who's over for Tech Ready 20, uh, which is an internal event that we run uh, here at Microsoft. Uh, and he's here to speak about kind of the full trust code transformation in SharePoint to the app model uh, for all the work that he's been heading up uh, in the CAT team with um, the Office 365 developer patents and practices stuff, which we've had him on the show before about. So uh, welcome back to Seattle. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, once again. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's always a good opportunity to get you in here as the brain, one of the big brain trusts here in uh, the SharePoint world, um, especially as you were here last week. You know, we trained around 50 partners, 40 or 50 partners on... And internals. Um, and, and internals too, yeah, on the full trust code to app model stuff. Uh, that was a good solid three days with hands-on labs and... Um, I've noticed there's been some blog posts which I'll put in the show notes from some of the attendees saying what they learned. So for pe people that weren't there, they can go and check that out and also all the contents online. So um, I'll put that in the show notes too so people can get an idea about what you were training and essentially it was just summarizing a lot of the PMP stuff, right? True, true. It was, it was well, it's kind of really interesting. Now the BNP has evolved to the stage that we've been able to create a true training uh, with the BNP material. So. I think we have roughly 10 to 12 modules, individual demos, and then hands-on labs for all of the modules. So what actually needs to be done uh, and pretty practical stuff. So like you, well, like many of you know, in MSDM quite often we have multiple different technical nuances, but then the question is how do I in reality uh, implement this stuff uh, with the customer? And that's kind of the BNP approach. We try to be as practical as possible because all of the BNP examples are coming from customer cases. Yeah, and that's kind of core where we've been doing this stuff with uh, the JD, JDP program with um, a core of about 30 um, customers that sit on our Office 365 dedicated environments and we're learning what they've been doing when they've been transforming from full trust code um, over to the app model. Um, and I guess it's nice because that allows you to see what other kind of best practices they're doing outside of just that transformation. And um, the reason I wanted to get you on the show was we had a lot of requests on the Yammer group for a bit more of an understanding about what we're seeing out there from an application lifecycle management perspective. Um, there's some great guys in the community like Chris O'Brien, um, who's blogged a lot about this around um, kind of t continuous integration. And he's shared a variety of stuff on Coplex and on his blog around that. And I'll make sure those are in the show notes as well. Um, but I guess the way I wanted to kind of flow the conversation was to hit on a few things. One was kind of you know, the the support of checking in this code into uh, Visual Studio or uh, online or even uh, Team Foundation Server uh, on-premises. And then kind of we'll have a bit more of a discussion around, you know, how does that work with continuous integration and continuous deployment and automated testing? And then the other big topic area would be around the um, how you set up your environments for dev, test, and prod. And obviously with the customers you've been working with, we had to kind of pick your brain on the different approaches that we can do there. Does that sound like a, a good show? Sounds like a good plan. I'm, um, I'm hoping everyone listening is just nodding, going, yeah, this is going to be great. <laughs> Otherwise, turn off now. But that's the agenda. Um, so to, to start off, I guess from a source control perspective, it sounds pretty um, obvious that this would just work when you're in Visual Studio to check in and, and check out code. But um, you know, historically, for people who may be in the SharePoint world, that wasn't always the case when it came to checking in and stuff. So um, what is that story there when it comes to using the app model with uh, Visual Studio and, and source control? Well, I think that's really straightforward now within the Visual Studio 2013 and the tooling has evolved enormously. So you don't actually need to worry about that pretty much at all. So the source control, uh, checking out, uh, checking in uh, the changes and tracking of changes definitely works as such. So that's that's pretty much taken care of by the tooling, which yeah. is really good. And interestingly, you know, this question does come up as well. You know, how, times, how comes we're using GitHub for 
all of our patterns and practice stuff and code samples and and what challenges does that bring to a project um, and what tools do you use to do that? Because um, obviously there's native tooling there for Git sure. um, within Visual Studio, but um, maybe it's just worth explaining what you guys are doing there with Git um, source control uh, specifically against GitHub. But I guess the same argument would be the same if you're using Visual Studio Online with Git as well, which you know you have that option to use rather than the TFS protocols. True. So Visual Studio tooling is, is evolving again all the time with the GitHub, and you don't actually need to have any external tooling. Um, at some point, our core team started using a source tree, which is a free tooling uh, with the GitHub uh, submissions. And, and to be honest, personally, I'm a TFS guy. So it did take a while to even start with the basic GitHub operations. And now we're learning more of all the time new stuff. So I'm not really a GitHub specialist. So if there's any issues, I always call Bert, uh, Bert Janssen, who's going to then solve those GitHub uh, problems for me. But in general, with the with the Visual Studio, the latest versions, you you just it works with the GitHub. You don't have to worry about or install any additional clients, which is really great. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, um, there's some features that GitHub have over just Git, like the pull requests, where I'm actually using a, a product called Smart Git now. It's a German company, and that helps me to understand like what things are in those pull requests and approve them in a bit better way than what's available in the web UI. Sure. But outside of that, I. I am using Visual Studio to kind of check in and or commit these things into into uh, the Git repos. So um, so once that stuff's in there, and obviously we've got that full support there of those project types, what types of things can we do with that source control to kind of help with the ALM story and the continuous integration story? And, and, and what kind of things have you got that we are using in patterns and practice or that you're seeing in customers when it comes to using source control? Specifically, I mean, even in individual development teams, it's useful to do this rather than using your laptop. But obviously in multi-developer teams, you know, there's de definitely benefits of putting this stuff in source control and, sure. and leading to CI as well. I think, the, yeah, the CI is definitely the thing where we're heading with, with the centralized source control. Obviously, making sure that if your laptop is expiring or gets broken, all of your source code is still in a centralized repository, that's the number one thing. Then the question is, how do we evolve the application lifecycle and evolve the quality of the code? And that's where the continuous integration comes along. So you make sure that your code is actually compiling against whatever the, the components and modules you have there. Uh, and I think the key point in the continuous integration is always the deployment and testing automation. And that's pretty much the more interesting part because, again, if you use, for example, T T TFS uh, for the continuous integration, it's pretty straightforward just to schedule that uh, daily compilation of stuff uh, and then make sure that the code compiles. But that doesn't actually tell you that the code works. Uh, and that's where you need to start thinking then the deployment automation, uh, which always been a pretty of a <clears throat> challenge in SharePoint world. Uh, and it's not, well, it's not precisely straightforward with the NAP model, but it's not that uh, difficult either. And there are certain uh, tricks with that one. Let's talk about that one in a second. And then obviously, whenever the deployment has been done, the, then the question is, how do we automate the testing? Um, and for that one, we have great web tests, uh, testing in the Visual Studio as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, like adding the parameters into the, the project now, the team build project to actually get it to automatically build. A lot of people don't realize you can actually do that with Visual Studio Online because the build agents support it as obviously as well as the, any version of that that's on-premises as well, which is, uh, it's a strong scenario there to do that. But you're right, once I've got that app package built, how on earth do I get it onto a SharePoint Online instance or even to a SharePoint server instance? What, what are the approaches there for that? So that's that's the tricky part. So officially, 
how would I put it, not officially, we don't really have a, a remote API to install an app fully uh, on, the, the, on the SharePoint site collection and get it trusted. And I think that's the key point. Uh, we can use site loading. Um, if we want to mimic, let's say, in installation of an app to, in, let's say, internet front page. And site loading is a, well, it's a feature which we enable, which is enabled by default within the dev site collection. And after that, we're able to do uh, deployment of an app to that particular site collection. Now, the trick, however, is that we don't have an API to do trusting of that particular app. So it would have the permissions to then operate within the site collection. Uh, so it would be able to then move to the automated web testing. And that's where we have two different approaches. So, so number one approach is to essentially mimic the end user behavior, the clicking of a mouse on the trust button using so-called HTTP post pattern or, or web UI automation. Not necessarily optimal case, because it's kind of found silly. It's 2015, and we need to do this kind of stuff. But that's the, just the way it is right now. Um, the second option is actually something slightly different, which we need to really get uh, documented out. So what you can do is that you're able to go to that uh, app in ASPX page, where you're able to, to give permissions for the app. And what you do is that you register essentially the same client ID and a secret to have the needed permissions uh, for the app. So, and so at the moment when we de then deploy or add the app to the site, it's already already trusted. So therefore, it's actually you're able to start using and it's working properly. Right, and and that's very similar to the model that we've done with the Azure Active Directory applications, where you have to go into Windows. Sorry. Microsoft Azure Management Portal to then register the application in Azure Active Directory, and you take that client ID in secret and put it into your ASP.NET MVC app, and then you deploy it. Um, and then I guess it's just another approach under the under covers of handling that, because obviously if you do an F5 from Visual Studio on a SharePoint app, it's doing that on the fly, sure. grabbing the ID, and that's why you need to do that trust in the UI when even when you're doing an F5 debugging. And, and to be honest, that Visual Studio uh, F5 is actually using HTTP POST, which is kind of yeah, kind of. Uh, ironic, um, but at the same time, I think the pre-trusting is, is definitely a fine, fine approach as well. Uh, so you, what you can do, because when you think about it, how many times your app client ID actually changes? Well, not that often. How many times your permission, what your app actually needs, needs changes? Well, not that often after the initial design. Um, and that just means that we need to do the pre-trusting and after that and do automated deployment and testing uh, against the same app ID. Right, and I guess the thing to bear in mind there is, and we'll talk a bit about environments later, but if you're deploying to different environments, naturally you're not going to be able to specify an ID for each one, so you'd have to somehow manage, okay, I'm deploying to this environment, this is the client ID and secret I'm using, or I'm deploying to this environment, this is the client ID and secret I'm using for that particular SharePoint app. I know that actually Kirk Evans has a pretty nice blog post related on how you can actually do that and also modify the URL, target URLs yeah. uh, inside of the app because you need to have that uh, hosting URL included in that file. So Kirk Evans has a great blog post related on how to do that automation in a, in a deployment, uh, sorry, in the Visual TFS. Uh, okay, I'll, um, I'll make sure I get that in the show notes as well so people can see those. And then, so once that app is deployed into the SharePoint site, whether it's um, a SharePoint hosted app or a SharePoint provider hosted app, obviously there might be a component that gets pushed out to an Azure website as well for the provider hosted scenario. Um, what things can we do then once the app's actually, essentially it's testable then by a, a warm-blooded human being or by automated web tests? What, what kind of things are you seeing customers do there? Well, 
To be honest, not that many customers do the full ALM scenario. A lot of them are looking into that, but our, our guidance have been, let's say, wake on this area, and we need to fix that, also provide a detailed setup, this is what you should be doing. Uh, but certainly what we see is, is the basic testing and basic web, uh, web uh, client, well, web automation testing to verify that the base use cases are actually up and running. Um, and what we're actually planning to do uh, pretty soon within during the spring is that we're going to use the BNB, uh, BNB samples and BNB code to even do a testing within our canary farm, which is pretty interesting. So right. we're taking this whole process and as to be part of our development cycle in product group. So we want to make sure that if there are any, any let's say, surprise changes, uh, even for this JavaScript injection side, we can actually track them. And then we automate this as a web test um, against what is executing or running in every single day. So, and the whole point being on the fact that then we're able to track um, as fast as possible that, for example, some suit navigation customizations would break. Well, you shouldn't be customizing the, the suit nav, but right. anyway. Yeah, it, it surprised me actually when I moved into the ISV world, uh, you know, talking to other ISVs, um, and now, especially now, when we're talking to a lot broader reach than I've ever ha had before, is how many people or how many organizations don't have that level of automated testing coverage across the UI, uh, even in the integration side and the unit test side. And there's a lot of kind of balance between the cost and effort associated with having that level of coverage, um, especially as um, applications iterate so quickly and change. Sure. I guess with PMP samples is a good scenario because I guess once the sample's baked, it's pretty much not going to change unless there's enhanced APIs or there's sure. a more efficient way of doing things. So it'd be great to kind of work on that. Sure. And I guess there'll be areas where we might be pushing the limits where we can go back to engineering and they'll be able to help us to enhance that scenario as well, which is cool. Sure. Sure. So that's something that we're working on right now? or So we're <coughs> we've been started to have a chat with Rob Howard on that one. Mm -hmm. And to set it up. And Canary Farm is essentially our dog fooding farm, just yeah. to let everybody know. So whatever before stuff actually goes to the production in the Office 365 tenants, we have obviously pre-testing environments, which, which are called Canary Farms. Yeah. Uh, and then having the BNP automation there would make a lot of sense. Um, I, and I, I don't know exactly when we will land that or when, when we will have the time to actually set it up, but it's definitely in our radar. Yeah, it's been exciting. Um, Steve Walker, who obviously you've worked with closely in the CAT team as well, has been working with the ISVs and, and now we've introduced it to the developer MVPs where now they get their own canary farm too. So the concept of canary is very much like the old mining days where the miners would walk down to the, the coal mines and chuck a canary in there and hopefully if he was the, the bird was chirping, we're all good. But if it stopped chirping, it was time to get, out, get the hell out of that mine. Um, so the idea being is if engineers are pushing things out to those environments and the environment stops chirping, chirping that we know to tell the engineers that something's not right. So being able to automatically deploy to those canary farms and run those automated tests is going to allow us to have lots of canaries chirping and hopefully not too many falling off their perch. True, true. But yeah, that's that's the whole idea. And and the BNP, since the BNP stuff and all of what we, well, the majority, obviously there's contributions from the community as well, which is really great. Uh, but some of the, well, I would say half of the stuff is coming from the real life cases. So we kind of know that if we set up a site collection provisioning, if you set up those JavaScript customization stories or JavaScript injections to the canary farm, it will be mimicking what actually our customers have in the production. Uh, and then we're able to, if nothing else, we will understand uh, if a certain new functionality will break something, uh, we could even start informing customers or right. uh, communicate that clearly. Especially if they're using our patterns, like we're already seeing 
bunch of enterprise customers and I was talking to some ISVs last week that are already using the PMP core libraries that we've shipped, um, which again is like a collaboration of various people kind of creating these libraries um, inside their core solutions as well. Okay. And so I, I guess my question there is, is that, you know, there's the automated web testing where we can test the kind of the key patterns that you've got going there. But um, the core is more of a library. So is there any kind of automated testing we're doing at that level, talking directly to those DLLs? So the PNP core, it, it, it's an awesome uh, concept and an awesome com, uh, component, and it, that is then increasing the productivity of the developers. Uh, so it has the extension methods and so on. And for that one, I think we have roughly 130 unit tests uh, now, right now implemented. They're all part of the PNP uh, repo. So we're able to actually go and start checking how do we create those unit tests uh, against our core library. Um, but that's, well, let's be clear on that one, that we actually have, uh, all the unit tests are so-called connected unit tests. So they're not really mocks or rhinos or whatever you want to call them, because you can't really do a proper, let's say, academically right way of doing unit testing with SharePoint. So what our unit testing are essentially doing is that in the whenever the unit test always starts, it will first create the site collection or create a site or deploy stuff, and then it will do the operation, and then it will clean up. And all of that, you can actually easily go and check it out uh, in the in the BNP core uh, core uh, Visual Studio uh, structure, how it's actually set up. Yeah, and I think that's become very much more realistic with running testing against a service where our service might change under the covers. So no matter how good your mocks are of what you think the service is going to return you, it, we could change or we could add extra information. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, you do really need to do it not a unit test, but really an integration test into sure. the service. So, sure. um, you know, please go and check that out, guys. I'll definitely add the specific examples in uh, what's in GitHub repo there so you can kind of see straight away what those integration tests are. Yeah. Um, so that kind of that covers off kind of the de deployment of the apps. Um, it checks off the kind of the automated testing. Um, but I guess the other big question that comes up is, right, well, we've tested it all now in one environment, but um, as a development team of more than one, um, or even an individual developer in an enterprise where there's a production environment and please, there is another environment where you're actually testing V2 of your app and not just deploying straight to production. What are you seeing customers doing there? There's a few different options for kind of application lifecycle around kind of the multiple environments. And um, it'd be good to kind of get your take on what your customers are doing there too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting discussion. Many of our enterprise customers are still using in individual virtual machines. And it's like, why are you doing that? If you're still eventually going to host your stuff and run your stuff in the cloud, because you're you're essentially causing yourself additional costs for nothing. Um, but what we see for many of them to do is is that they have as well, they have a first the dev tenant. It might be individual dev tenant for individual developers as a part of the MSDN subscription. But that has that flaw that it only has a one account. So essentially you're running then your code always as a tenant administrator, and that's not really uh, real life. Uh, which is something which we're looking into uh, maybe to change in the future. Um, yeah, actually, just to add there, it would be great. There's a user voice on this that uh, if there are particular scenarios that um, you're looking at around the fact that the one individual account isn't giving you the scenarios you need, I'd love you to excuse me, jump on that user voice and add your comments in there. And um, if you've got votes left, just vote on that one if you think it's really important because it is something we're discussing internally uh, around what we call the cogs, the cogs of running the service, um, and what we feel we should be giving away because there are some things like the fact that because you get a tenant, you're getting a ProPress license and we don't want people kind of using it to actually use it in a tr 
true reduction sense. So, but we need as much kind of information there as we can to help kind of push that to be more than one account. True, true. And then the the, the alternative approach, what we see some of the customers and many of the customers to actually take is that all of the developers are sharing one separate dev tenant. And uh, so therefore they, 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 they have their own site collections within the tenant. They're able to access all of the, the administrative stuff and they can essentially mess that tenant up if they want. Mm-hmm. But all of the developers can share that. And then whenever the stuff is ready within the dev tenant, it's ready to be moved forward. And that's where we talk about uh, using possible test tenant. A separate tenant again from the production if uh, if needed. So because obviously this this whole thing depends heavily on the fact that what kind of apps are you writing. If it's a SharePoint hosted app, which will be eventually maybe in a store, SharePoint hosted apps don't operate in a tenant level. So you can't actually mess your tenant up. Uh, and you're able to do testing and, and automation even in, in isolated site collections, maybe in production. If your application is, however, uh, requesting, let's say, taxonomy store permissions, user profile permissions, or or tenant admin permissions for site collection creation, you probably don't want to actually do the testing of that one in the production. So therefore, you want to have a, a separate isolated test tenant, which is then mimicking the production uh, setup and mimicking the production structures. Uh, and that's where then the testing happens, the user acceptance testing, before we actually go to the production. So technically, we will. We are already seeing customers who have three different tenants, uh, which are then used for different purposes uh, to automate for high-quality deliver- deliveries. At the same time, it doesn't mean that every single customer has to have a three tenants, not at all. It definitely comes down on, on what kind of development uh, the customer is, is wants to do. Um, to oversimplify things, it might be that the customers have really only the production tenant, and then it's the developers or CIs, system integrators, who actually have those dev tenants. Again, it comes down on the fact that who's, is it an in-house development, is it a partner development, or what kind of model is needed. Right, and then you know, if you, it's not just about spinning up the Office 365 instance. There's obviously, if you're doing anything with the Office 365 APIs, you're going to start needing to register those things in Azure Active Directory. And um, you know, even on my development environment, I, you know, that gets a mess pretty quick as you start practicing with Azure AD applications. So you don't want that mess in production. And and so having that kind of wall up between your production and your individual dev tenants and a a pre-prod stroke test stroke UAT staging, whatever you want to call it. Um, it is really important to have that isolation and and you know with the MSDN credits for individual developers that's certainly the way to go because you do get that Azure AD um, instance as well as Office 365 so you can have that isolation but um, it's certainly something that adding Azure to the mix for provider hosted apps as well with websites as well as the Azure AD registration is something that you've got to kind of take into account. True. Uh, and, and it's a good thing to remember that right now, isn't it actually that you get a 10 uh, free websites in Azure? So That's right. It's part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really great because that means that you can truly create provider hosted apps without any costs, additional costs. Yeah. Um, because that that used to be that, every, uh, well, at least some of the people were saying that we're only going to do SharePoint hosted apps, which are highly limited, uh, for the sake that immediately when you start doing provider host, that you have to actually pay extra money. And that's yeah. not the case um, because it's actually free. Is it 10 free? Uh, there are alternatives and there are obviously impact on what kind of capabilities you use from Dasher. Yeah, and I've actually seen quite interestingly just recently um, people running multiple multiple SharePoint provider hosted apps mapped to an individual Azure website. Yep. 
um, which is, you know, totally plausible. I mean, there's obviously isolation security that you might want to take into consideration there, but there's something that can absolutely be done. I believe Kirk Evans wrote about that too actually, in a blog post. And Steve Peshkar, actually. Oh, and Steve, yeah. I think they both kind of at the same time posted that one. Sure. I think they may have been drinking at a bar and then it was at a race to get their Could published be. one out, more than likely. Could be. And and whenever it's Grandpa Peshkar uh, publishing <laughs> something, it's it's just uh, the realities of life. So. Pure gold. Pure gold, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the formatting is not uh, perfect, but anyway, yeah. excellent stuff. <laughs> and um, so, you know, when we talk about the multiple uh, environments, um, you mentioned or you touched on from an integration testing perspective, kind of set up and tear down. Um, I know you're very much a big advocate of this, much like I've been for a long, long time around kind of declarative provisioning versus uh, imperative provisioning. So using XML inside features compared to um, writing kind of managed code to create things in the integration test and the setup and the teardown, is that the approach we're taking is imperative code? So, um, so I used to be really, really strong. That was actually what I taught in the MCM, the master certification training for 18 rotations, is that how to do stuff using XML. But then the reality is that we actually don't want to go there. Uh, so what we're doing with some of the customers, if we need to set up the things, we, we just do automated site collection provisioning using the remote provisioning patterns, essentially running code, which is then setting up the needed, needed setup. Um, but then that is a good question that if we if we have multiple tenants, how do we move the data to uh, content migration maybe between the tenants? And that's maybe where the third party tooling will help. Uh, quite often what we now right now see when we're working with dedicated customers is that they don't really concentrate uh, doing pr uh, super detailed testing based on the exact same data. It's more about the functionality. How does it actually work? How do you provision new site collections? How do you uh, do all of that stuff? Right. So like creating sites, lists, libraries, and then data in those lists and libraries, yeah. you can just run through that one bit of managed code in each environment and you know, throw it away and rerun it so that every environment's got the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's something which we're definitely looking into the BNP as well, to have a proper, let's say, remote provisioning XML structure, uh, which is kind of an ironic that we're kind of moving now to XML outside of the SharePoint to automate stuff. But then that's just, uh, um, well, that's just the reality that every single customer and partner has a slightly different requirements. And then we don't want to actually hard code that. Having a, some sort of a XML structure which you can modify and configure does make sense. So you mean um, I could write an XML file that had like the parent element of site and then a child element of list and then a child element of like items or whatever. And yep. then your PMP app would read the XML and create everything. Be, so right now we're working into, I, I would estimate that in the next two weeks we'll push the, the remote provisioning framework out. And that's essentially a framework where you can configure what kind of templates you have and then what kind of, when you select the template, uh, what content type site columns, libraries, list and content is actually within that site. So using the same engine, we can we can then pretty much take the following step and automate uh, setup of sites. Uh, so you're able to then say, use that XML for that particular, those particular URLs and that will be your, let's say, automated uh, environment copy 
uh, functionality as well. Yeah, and and you know, for those guys out there, we are using GitHub. We are open source. We are taking contributions. I know for a fact I've written three of those at different SIs in my time when I was in Australia, and um, actually when I was at Avpoint in in New York, we've written some stuff for the way we used to test our apps. So, if you do want to contribute any of your code around this, um, we you know we absolutely love to see the pull requests and for you guys to you know, start conversations in there with Vesa on the Yammer group that we have on the technical network for the PMP group um, because we we need that input and we want those contributions and um, you know these guys are only a small team and what they're turning out is is absolutely enormous and um, but it would be great to get those external contributions as well if you guys want to share some of that stuff too. Absolutely and, and, and I think people are well it seems to be that people are even scared about submitting uh, those individual pull requests. I'm getting all the time uh, personal emails asking I have an idea is this good uh, is this good stuff well I, I've written x and y and z is this good stuff and I would be much more we would actually prefer people to just put, uh, submit the pull requests and, and let's have a discussion an open discussion about it. We are not that picky uh, as long as the, the implementation actually uh, follows, let's say, the basic guidance and basic basic principles, uh, what the other PNP uh, stuff is uh, following as well. Cool. And so uh, in the dev.office.com slash training, there is a module there uh, within the first course on application lifecycle management, which Professor actually um, reviewed for us before we recorded it. Um, and there's a bunch of information on MSDN around this. And, you know, as I say, as we get more guidance in the PMP stuff, we'll definitely um, be sharing that. We are still working on a PMP landing page on dev.office.com. So we still are redirecting people to the GitHub uh, repo for now, but we'll have a much better uh, splash page, so to say, that people can use to kind of get an idea about what's new because yeah. you guys are churning, man. Like your monthly, we uh, monthly, weekly, your monthly video calls and um, your updates of what, what new samples and stuff are coming in thick and fast. So yeah. we, we are aware that it's hard for people to keep up. And so we're going to improve that splash page to help people to kind of see what's new. And obviously, we'll keep an eye on that for the LM stuff too. Sure. And what's really interesting, the new stuff, obviously, is that, well, which was a huge thing for our team was that we went to the MSDN. So now, gradually, all of the service, uh, service uh, come on, there's pack, solution packs, uh, which were uh, released uh, before as a MSDN download, we will be part of the MSDN and we'll start expanding there as well. So that will then also so show that it's not just a random GitHub repo, it's actually official guidance from Microsoft. And so yeah. yeah, that's very true. And, and actually, I, I, Tobias Zimmergren um, actually reached out to me on uh, Yammer to say that he had taken a blog post that was guidance around web jobs in Azure uh, and submitted that into the PMP-guidance repo. And so the, the flow there is that the MSDN content publishing team every month will look at that guidance and some of it is already mapped so you can actually see the markdown page in github matches what's the msdn article um, in the official pages that we have um, but every month they'll revisit the github repo and, and they'll look at what's been updated or what's new um, and they'll rev it there's a few things they have to do um, with checks on kind of the language or wordings that we use. I think there was a funny one that maybe we can't share, um, <laughs> where, where the, the comment may have um, been misconstrued as quite a rude word because it was a typo, um, which they caught before we published it onto MSDN. So there's little things like that that there is a reason we have those guys before things get to MSDN. But I think the benefit for anyone listening is that if you do want to be on the bleeding edge of our guidance, you can check the GitHub repo. Sure. Um, but 
then officially, if you've got to show something to a customer or a partner, you can actually reference the MSDN stuff knowing full well that it's gone through the, the checks and the polishes and stuff. True, true, absolutely. And, and that you reminded me on the BNP guidance. So right now, we already have a significant amount of code. Uh, so what we now want to do is concentrate more on this guidance where uh, we're just prepared for a afternoon session related on transformation to the, the FTC of farm solutions to the app model, which is all about recipes. And that's one of the, uh, let's say, article series which are planning to write pretty fast, which is essentially that if you did uh, old school site provisioning using site definitions, web template, what is the new solution, and then link all the relevant information to it. If you did a custom field types, uh, what is your story within the app model and how you can achieve the same thing. And that's really, really uh, interesting part. And we will definitely put uh, additional time and resources on the guidance part. That's great. Well, I really appreciate your time, Vesser. I know you've been busy and you were busy with this last week. And then at the weekend, you were also, you redid the training to the MCS field guys here. So I appreciate all the work you're doing there. Um, where are you next? When are you heading home? Uh, so I'm heading home tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. as long as the JFK will be cleared from the snow. Yeah, so the, the two foot of snow, hopefully it melts by then. But I'm, I'm sure they have all the machines out clearing the runways right now. So, um, well, safe travels back. And um, we'll definitely get you on the show in the future to talk a bit more about the PMP stuff. And I appreciate all the, uh, the guidance there on the application lifecycle management stuff as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Vesa. Cheers. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you check out dev.office.com for all of your Office 365 developer needs. All the links from the show are in the blog post on blogs.office.com WACDEV, where you can find the latest news about Office 365. If you have any ideas for new shows or questions for us, please join us in our Yammer group in the Office 365 technical network. Have a great week, guys, and keep coding on Office 365.